Two riders on separate but parallel journeys, now in South America, having just finished the Trampoline of Death, a.k.a. Devil's Trampoline, known as the most dangerous road in Colombia. And a whole lot more coming up on this episode. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's made in the USA, has a lifetime warranty. They are the place to buy Google Tech filters in North America. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. All bikes need tough, reliable strapping systems, and Green Chili Adventure Gear makes heavy-duty strapping systems to fit all motorcycles. And you can turn any bag into panniers using the unique strapping system, all available at greenchiliadv.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since way back in 2002, and they have 45,000 parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door at a moment's notice. MaxBMW.com. That's MaxBMW.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure. There's no electrical, no vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm, so there's no exposed nozzles by your sprockets. One ounce of oil lasts over a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, which everybody wants to. www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. The Trampoline of Death, also known as Devil's Trampoline and a few other names, is a stretch of mountain road in the south of Colombia in South America. It was built in the 1930s, and like many mountain roads, it's cut into the side of the mountain, which means that you have a steep uphill on one side and then sort of a drop-off most times on the other side. The road rises in elevation to something like 3,000 meters, which is just shy of 10,000 feet. So weather and fog often wreak havoc for travelers along the stretch, Um, not to mention mudslides that can completely block the road. There are apparently endless switchbacks, narrow sections, blind corners, all the things that make riding treacherous, not to mention the oncoming traffic. Numerous waterfalls as well come down on one side of the mountain and then flow across the road going off on the cliff of the other side. And over the years, they say that hundreds of people have lost their lives on this stretch of road. Now, these two riders we have on today. Good morning. That's Jeremy and Al. How's it going, Jim? This is the couple we're featuring on our Southward Chronicles, this series we've been doing. Yeah, my name is Jeremy Quaker, and uh, we're heading south on our motorcycles, um, hopefully as far as the road goes. My name is Elle. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, and I'm traveling with Jeremy. It's a series that we're doing here on Adventure Rider Radio. The first one to ever be done like this has never been done on a podcast before. We call it Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. Now, this trampoline of death or, or devil trampoline is not necessarily a required route for these two there's ways around it they have choices but they chose to do it for the adventure mm-hmm. yes well we're going to get to that in a minute but first i want to tackle something else for jeremy now this trip is the first time they've spent this much time together because up until now 
it's been a bit of a long distance relationship. In fact, you know, Horizons Unlimited, Grant Johnson, you know, they set up the meets all around the world. That's where they met. Yes. At a Horizons Unlimited event in British Columbia. Jeremy won't remember that though. And then we met again at some motorcycle shows in Canada and he won't remember that either. But what do you mean Jeremy won't remember that? He doesn't remember. Um, Maybe it's partly because he's in his book selling mode and he's staffing his booth and he's just trying to be friendly to all the people, but it's hard for him to remember all the faces. Um, Or maybe he, who knows, didn't have enough reason to remember. Well, okay. So at that first Horizons meet, (laughs) I was there with my now ex-girlfriend and uh, she's a a lovely person. I'm still friends with her. Um, But she does have a bit of a jealous streak in her. So when I did meet Elle, uh, I now remember that my then girlfriend was with me at the time and she was none too pleased. Uh, Elle was a bit enthusiastic, you could say, that she had met the author of a book that she had read. You know, at the motorcycle events like Horizons, they give you those little tags to wear and it says, this is my name, this is what kind of bike I ride, this is where I've traveled to, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Jeremy was wearing one and it said, uh, author of motorcycle therapy. And I had just given that book to the person that I was traveling with. And they were camping with me at this Horizons event. So I went over to introduce myself and then I read his name tag. I said, hi, I stuck out my hand and then the next words were, oh, you're the guy who wrote the book. (laughs) And I may have been very loud. (laughs) And then I hollered to my friend. So I was very enthusiastic and loud and Jeremy just kind of backed up a couple steps and didn't look exactly thrilled. Yeah. And then it was probably a year or two before we saw each other again. And I was like, hey, Jeremy, the guy with the book. And he was like, who is this crazy lady yelling at me? And then again, another year before the next either motorcycle show or Horizons event where we would run into each other again. I think it took about four years of that before he finally clued in that I was the same person. Yeah. (laughs) The short version is we met again the final time through a mutual friend. And, mm. and then from there, you, you sort of kept up a, a long distance, distance relationship. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I live in Canmore, Alberta. Elle lives in Calgary. And um, so we were seeing each other, dating, and it was more and more frequent. But there was still that hour, hour and a half sometimes separation between us. So uh, she would come over for the weekends or I would go over for the weekends now and then. Um, but there was always that distance. And during the week... We were living in our own worlds. We were hanging out with our own friends, and uh, that continued for two years, actually. We were planning this trip in that time, but we've never lived together. We've never spent um, vast amounts of time together, I would say. We have done a couple motorcycle trips together, but usually three days, five days. I think the most would be about a week. Mm -hmm. And um, we both knew that we wanted to travel on our motorcycles to South America, Um, before we ever started dating. That was something we both thought of. We've been to Panama. We haven't been further than that. So it's kind of on the list. And the more we spent time together, that more that idea became something we might do together instead of just separately someday. Mm -hmm. So the relationship developed along with the trip plans. Yes. Yeah. Now with the planning, you went from sort of long distance relationship and the weekends and like you said, maybe a couple of trips uh, together to mm-hmm. now spending all your time together. And in that planning mm-hmm. process, you sort of have a contingency in there in case things don't work out. I think that deciding to travel together for a year, possibly longer than a year, is basically the equivalent of agreeing to move in together. And if we weren't at that point back home in Canada, 
then that's a scary idea to commit to just because we're traveling. So yeah, uh, it was mostly my initiative, but I wanted separate tents and the ability to sustain ourselves individually should we need to. Or maybe even if we don't need to, but if we want to for some part of our trip. If there's something that one person wants to do, the other is not very interested in, we can separate if we want to. It's almost more than moving in together, isn't it? Because when you travel together, you're you're dealing with a lot of stress. And I know we talked a little bit about this before, um, just the stress of day-to-day travel, of dealing with things, being in foreign countries, foreign languages, all these sorts of things of the problems of being away from home. Whereas if you move in with somebody, geez, you go off to work each day and you don't, you're not going to see each other mm-hmm. until the evening. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So thank goodness we have separate motorcycles and separate helmets where we have some time alone there. So, um, okay. So, and, and now you've been traveling for how long? I think we are at about day 94. Yeah. Elle's counting the days. I would say we're about three months in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because I was looking for that response. I was wondering, are you counting the days <laughs> <laughs> or, or is it just going to be, well, geez, I'm not really too sure. But so 94 days, L, what's 94 days like with Jeremy? Not too bad. Um, (laughs) there have been some testy moments for sure. Um, we've had some discussions that are new to us since our traveling together. Um, like you said, it's different than living together because it is so much stress of trying to figure out the language, worrying about getting lost, trying to figure out where we are and how to get to where we're going. How are we going to find a place to sleep? How are we going to communicate what kind of food we want? Um, it's stressful enough that it adds an extra level to the two of us being together. So there's been days. Um, we had a middle-of-the-night argument, which was interesting, probably classic for couples, I suppose. But Jeremy stole the blankets, and I stole them back, and yeah. it turned into a three-in-the-morning lights on. And um, that's the first time that happened with us. But that one did actually open up another uh, can of worms, I guess. And it, it came down to communication and perception of what the other wants. And, you know, we had a good discussion that went beyond uh, me stealing blankets or snoring or whatever. <laughs> now, the, um, the the blanket stealing thing, is that the sort of the, the uh, straw that broke the camel's back? And I think you said that, that analogy yeah. earlier. It, it, was that what it was, a buildup to that? And then all of a sudden things snap. It's like, wow, I can't deal with this anymore. I think so. I think for me, some of the roads and the weather and the cold and the wet and just feeling frustrated in general was going on for me, at least. I think the amount of time we're spending to get together and being 24-7 every day was um, building a little bit of stress. And then this was, like you say, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. I mean, that day we had just been on this road uh, in Colombia that's called the Trampoline of Death. And uh, it had been raining on us all day. We were in the mud. And there were some water crossings. It was a stressful day. And then it got colder and wetter and colder and wetter. And by the time we got to our hotel, we were desperate. So we spent way more money on a hotel than we normally do. Which you would think would be nice. Like, hey, let's splurge a little and at least we'll have heat and hot water and lots of space to spread out our stuff and dry out. It wasn't worth what we paid for. Yeah, we didn't even have uh, like much heat in the room and there was no hot water. And nothing dried. All the stuff you hang out to, to dry, none of it was dry. In the morning, you've got more wet stuff to put on again when you're already cold. And so that was the night in which the... The blanket showdown occurred. <laughs> now, Jeremy, what has three months in the way that you view it with Al been like? It's been 
better than I expected. And I have to say that I was already expecting it to be pretty good. Uh, I know that Elle is very, I can't say laid back because she's intense and she's very um, emotional in a good way. I would say that she's uh, got 100% enthusiasm. Um, but I knew that she was also um, level-headed, let's say. And when she is angry at something, she's able to focus her her aggression and her anger at that thing, be mad at the weather or be mad at, you know, the fact that her motorcycle isn't acting properly or whatever. And yes, Jim, we do irritate the living dickens out of each other sometimes. <laughs> well, that is part of being a couple, isn't it? I, I think so. And that works fine. If one of us is in a bad mood or hungry or tired, the other one can go, oh, okay, I'm going to put this conversation on hold until after they've eaten food. But if we're both tired, worn out, stressed, hungry, then yeah, sometimes it's entertaining. And, and also sometimes it can work in our advantage. The other day, for example, we were uh, hijacked a little bit by uh, this tout who brought us to this uh, hotel or camping spot, rather. We were supposed to pitch our tents and we said, okay, first we want to get food. And he said, no, 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 no. I'll show you the place where you pitch your tent and then you can get food. I'll show you a restaurant. And we retired and we went, okay. And he shows us this place where we can pitch our tents. And then we're like, okay, now we got to go get food. And then a guide showed up, a guide to the local park. And L was saying, I think he came here just for us. We should listen to his presentation. And then I kind of said to L, well, we didn't ask for this. Uh, that sounds like that's his problem. I'm going for food. And I put my helmet on and I started up my motorcycle and the guide was standing there. And the guy, Expectantly. Yeah, and the guy who brought the guide was standing there. And, and Elle was kind of like, okay, I'll follow you. And but feeling a little bit torn, like this is rude, but no, we also didn't ask for this and I don't want to be pressured into any kind of sales pitch, yeah. but I'm still feeling kind of torn and obliged a little bit. It was a bit rude, but I had been consistent all along with my messaging, which was, I need food and then we'll figure this out. So they were kind of, um, pushing and pushing and pushing until finally I said, eh, that's your problem. It's not my problem. I'm leaving, going to get some food. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and then we came back after food and he said, oh, by the way, that little space beside where we told you you could put your tents, there's going to be some people coming over later tonight. They'll be playing a music, but no, don't worry. Just a little bit of music, you know, just a little till maybe like 10 o'clock at night or, oh, you know, maybe 11, but just a little bit of music, no problem. You're telling me there's going to be a freaking party beside my tent? I don't think we want to stay here. So we actually totally left the place and got our money back. Now, was it a sales pitch? Was the guy sort of setting yeah. me up for something? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a park, which is a famous park, which is the reason we were in that town to see this park with these famous statues. But we didn't ask for a guide. We didn't ask for a sales pitch. We actually did go to the park on our own without a guide and we did just fine. So... I'm glad that Jeremy was um, tough enough in potentially a little rude way, but also enough to um, push past that feeling of feeling obliged and just reminding me that, no, we don't owe these people anything. We don't have to listen to this. Yeah. And, and that comes from years of me traveling in the Middle East. Um, there comes a time where you have to be not exactly rude, but you have to be very firm and, and steadfast with your resolve and just say, no, I'm not doing this. Thank you for your offer. No. And then just walk away because um, at some point, if you if you continue to engage, uh, you'll be there for hours and you'll spend a lot of money. money. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of instinct that was uh, 
gained from hard experience. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one because it's very easy. I mean, I've done this tons of times where I'm, I'm polite and just let someone talk. And next thing you know, you've wasted. You regret and, it. Yeah, you, you regret it. Yeah. You, you know, it was a mistake. You you should have just been up front and been maybe potentially slightly rude and say, you know, mm-hmm. look, I, I don't have time or I'm not interested or however you want or to approach it. Or I promise it. you I'm not going to buy anything anyway. So don't waste your time and my time. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. And you guys have run into this at Borders as well. Yeah, borders and any touristy town where they want to sell you all kinds of little stuff. Just keep your hands in your pockets because once they put it in your hand, then it's hard to give it back without paying money. Oh, yeah, that's a good tactic. And I, I guess you're running into, I mean, are you learning from this? Because you must see all the sales tactics when you when you come into these places. Yeah, I think for me, it is still learning again a little bit too. Um I thought, oh, I've been through borders, the Central America border crossings. I've done those before. I know what to expect. And still, when they come along and say, I'll help you, I'll help you, I think, oh, this is different than what I remember. It has changed in the few years I've been here. I don't know exactly what building to go to or which lineup to start with. So maybe I do need some help. And this guy seems really nice. Maybe it would be helpful. And we learned, nope. They're more often there trying to get as much money out of you as they can, telling you whatever will work more often than actually being legitimately helpful and honest. And, you know, we joke about me not learning lessons and there is some truth to that. But one of the lessons that I have learned is saying no to touts. And again, that was through uh, traveling, especially in in Egypt. Um, You kind of have to break with social norms a little bit because they're playing on that. They want you to feel obligated and bad sometimes. Um, so, and I wasn't rude to this guy. I don't think I was just very firm in the fact that I've said, I'm going to get food and that's what I'm doing right now. And if you want to stay here, that's fine. If you want to join us, that's fine too, but I'm leaving. I think for me, Colombia is a little bit different as well, because what we've seen and what we've talked with some of the locals about after understanding is a lot of people from Venezuela have left their country. Some of them live in Colombia and some of them don't have any means of making money. So one of the towns we were in, there was an incredible amount of people trying to sell stuff or just straight up beg for money. Like it was incredibly difficult to just sit down in the square and eat supper. There would be interruptions every two or three minutes. You couldn't have a conversation with the people you were eating dinner with. We were interrupted again and again and again and again. And little children begging who may legitimately be starving and needing to beg. But what are you going to do? If you keep giving money out, you're going to have a lineup of people. You're not going to be able to leave without giving up all the money in your pockets. So you have to be firm, but it's... It's sad and it's discouraging and it's it's really tough situation to be in. It makes me incredibly aware of my own privilege and the fact that I'm from Canada and can go back anytime I need to. And also that I can go back even if I completely run out of all my money on this trip and I'm completely broke and have nothing left. I can go back to Canada and probably find a pretty decent paying job within a reasonable amount of time. And the people from Venezuela can't expect anything like that at all. It's tough to see. It's a tough situation to be in. Does it does it ever sort of make you think about travel and, and what you're doing? Does it make you feel like you shouldn't be there or something or maybe feel guilty for sitting there eating your meal? Yeah, I do. It's tough. And so that's a good thing to have someone like Jeremy to travel with and discuss those kind of things afterwards. Um I think he's better at putting on the tough face in public situations like that. 
um, yeah, I definitely feel guilty. Um, I feel sad. I feel worried. And it's tough to turn around, drive to the next city on my BMW motorcycle, be able to pay whatever gas costs because I don't even really notice the cost of gas very much. And if my biggest decision today is should I pay for a nicer hotel or a cheaper hotel, ah, I'm doing pretty darn good in life. But if I do feel guilty, how is that going to help anything? Well, and that's one of the benefits of travel, though, too, Jim, is uh, it does add perspective to your life. Because when I'm in Canada, I certainly don't feel uh, privileged and wealthy, even though I absolutely am. And on a global scale, uh, you really see it. So it helps you. I, I think, you know, Elle says I'm better at putting on a tough face, but um, I think travel really helps me build empathy. And it's true, we don't uh, hand things out to people who are asking. Although I do often um, hand out money to people who are playing an instrument on the street or to someone who's juggling on a street corner. You know, if they're providing something um, and making a good effort, I'll, I'll definitely uh, drop in a few coins. Um, but for me, I think travel builds empathy and it helps me keep perspective on my own life and realize how fortunate I am and um, maybe see things from another person's point of view, if only momentarily. I hope that's happening. And as Elle said, I mean, you couldn't, you, you can't revitalize the economy with your pocketbook. You know, you're not going to be sent, sit there and hand out money and, and really change things other than your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could you could give somebody a meal for one time, but um, I understand you're sitting there and you're just going to have a, a lineup of people. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it takes a lot to be able to say, I mean, like like you're saying, Jeremy did even with the campsite there, it takes a lot. Um, I, I want to say courage. It takes a lot of courage. It, it does to say, okay, enough. And, and you got to mm-hmm. move on. And, and unfortunately, that is the imbalance of the world, I think, you know, and you just yeah. have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I try to use that sparingly. Like I'm definitely, I don't think that I'm uh, being rude to a lot of people, <laughs> but um, at least not intentionally. But when someone is definitely doing a hard sell and aggressive sales, um, yeah, I've got no problems um, just saying no very firmly. And if they're still talking when I'm walking away, then you know you can keep talking, but I'm going to be in a different part of the world than you are in 10 seconds. Watch this. I'm assuming that the reason they're so aggressive is because they've developed techniques over dealing with people rejecting them. So they're probably pretty used to that sort of rejection. Mm -hmm. I was telling Elle about a time I was in Turkey and there was this uh, shoeshine gentleman. He was walking in front of me and he was going over uh, a bridge over the Bosporus and he dropped one of his shoeshining brushes and he kept walking. And I thought he dropped it unknowingly, unwittingly. So being the courteous, you know, Canadian, I uh, picked up the shoe brush and I walked up after him and I handed it back to him and, and he was, oh, he was so grateful, so grateful. He's thankful, thankful, thankful. Here, let me shine my, let me shine your shoes and show you how grateful I am. Please, please, please. No, no, no cost, no cost. And so I sat down and then as soon as he started brushing my shoes, um, he started telling me about how bad business was and oh, how he hadn't made any money that day. And I quickly realized, oh, that's all an act. And he's actually trying to extort money from me for being nice to him. So that time, I actually listened to his pleas, basically, realized he was faking, and I let him shine my boots, both of them. And uh, in fact, I made him shine both of my boots and then didn't pay him um, because he said he would do it, and I was holding him to his word. 
And all I wanted to do was give him his brush back, uh, but no. And then I read in The Lonely Planet that's actually a tactic that they use. And then they use the guilt over you know, the sales pitch to extract money from you. So I don't know. Uh, I don't like the gimmicks and the scams and the deceit, uh, especially when you're a kind, um, basically kind-hearted person trying to help someone out. Um, that to me seemed supremely unfair. So I had no problems accepting a free boot shine from him and then saying, thank you. Goodbye. Well, we're going to take just a short break here right now, just for a minute. Um, then we're going to be back. We got a lot more to talk about. Stay with us. Well, if you're riding anywhere near Southern British Columbia or even passing through to Alaska or the Yukon, consider dropping by the Red Rock Garage. The Red Rock Garage is in Beaverdale, British Columbia, and it's becoming a motorcycle destination. It's often described as a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. But that's not all. I mean, obviously, they have fuel and coffee there, but they've got a campground, they've got a B&B, even a cabin to rent. And on top of that, it's surrounded by some of the best riding you're going to find in British Columbia or anywhere for that matter. It's located on Highway 33 in Beaverdale. You should drop by their website, plan it into your route for the upcoming season and see why riders are making the trip to Beaverdale in British Columbia to visit the Red Rock Garage. Don't forget to take a a sticker if you have one as well, because there might be a place to put your sticker when you get there. You'll have to check that out. Make sure when you're dealing with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's (laughs) redrockgarage.ca. You ever seen a pair of boots, maybe your boots, that are sort of chewed up on the bottom where the foot meets the peg? Obviously, this is because the teeth are digging into your your boot itself. Now, this is one of the design aspects that IMS considers when making your foot peg. They come up with designs that help reduce wear and tear, yet still achieve the grip. For instance, the ADV1 and ADV2 pegs, you'll notice that the teeth are dull, yet they use multiple rows in a unique design. And those multiple rows allow more contact points, which makes your foot stay on the peg, yet not dig into the sole of your boot. Now, on the rally pegs, they have quite sharp teeth on them, but they use what's called a staggered tooth design, which means a couple of teeth close together. So it's kind of like a bed of nails thought process. You know, stand on one nail, it goes through your foot, stand on a bunch of nails, and you're supported, yet you get incredible grip. These are two different approaches to solve the same problem with two different pegs. So it depends on your application. So you can kind of see why I'm so impressed with IMS foot pegs. The background work that's put into these pegs before they go into, even into manufacturing. Their website, imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, please throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Ellen, in particular, you've mentioned several times when we've talked now about the the different conditions, and, and I really appreciate your honesty and openness with this about being cold and wet and sweaty in your mm. gear and and yep. all those types of things. <laughs> stinky um, and stinky, yeah, exactly. Has there been a lot of that? Yeah. Uh, is is there a lot of hardship to achieve what you're doing? There is discomfort for sure, and I'm gonna dare to say that it's a little more for me than Jeremy. Um, generally speaking, I worry about my looks a little more than Jeremy does. He doesn't care 
he rides with his visor open and he, he walks into a restaurant after coming off the road with three dead mosquitoes, half a fly and a still buzzing wasp hanging off the side of his beard. And he doesn't even care. And to me, that's not okay. So um, I'm thinking about things like shampoo and makeup and stuff to bring with me more than Jeremy is. But also, I don't think that I'm as a confident as a rider as Jeremy, especially when it comes to off-road. So we did, for example, the trampoline of death road in Bolivia, which is beautiful and fabulous. Yeah. What did I say? Bolivia. Right. Colombia. And um, I'm very glad I did it. I'm also very glad I had Jeremy there because there were times when I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. This road is so skinny and this truck needs to get past me. And I need to literally hug the side of the mountain in order for this truck to pass. And he is within an inch of hitting my panniers. If he does hit me, then what? Like, I don't know. If I took all of my luggage off the bike, I could pick it up again myself, maybe. But thank goodness Jeremy's around. So I know I can rely on him to help me if I fall over and need help picking it up. Or if I get too scared and there's a big water crossing with slippery rocks and a cliff that goes down, down, down as far as you can see. So I could probably do this water crossing if it was flatland, but because that cliff is there and freaking me out, I'm going to say, hey, Jeremy, can you ride my bike across for me? Um, I feel then maybe not ashamed, but definitely not very proud of myself that I had to get a guy to ride my bike for me across this stupid little water crossing. So it's tougher a little bit more physically, um, a little bit more gender role-wise and expectations of looks. And I think also just the physical ability of bike riding. Um, when there are places that Jeremy gets excited about, I get scared about. So we had our intercoms on and he was ahead of me earlier in Colombia. And we were on a road that was supposed to be paved, but there were chunks that just disappeared and it was dirt and potholes and mud. And, and um, he's just going along the same speed as he would when it's paved. I'm slowing down every time. Then we get to a section where I hear him in the intercom go, oh, yeah, oh, I'm going to turn my camera on for this part. And then I'm going through it. And I don't feel excitement. I feel fear. What the heck could it be that's making him so excited? And I get around the corner and see, and there's an 18-wheeler completely stuck. There are men with shovels trying to unstick this truck because he is buried up to the axles in mud. And the mud is dried somewhat by now, so Jeremy was able to go through without getting stuck. But the ruts that have been made by previous vehicles are so tall that they're pretty much scraping the side of your panniers as you drive through the middle of this rut. I was freaking out and he was thrilled. So yeah, it's a little more challenging for me than Jeremy, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun for you, right? Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I tend to deal with cold weather quite a lot better than Al. Um, but I think when it comes to heat, um, we both uh, suffer through that. We have gone through some very hot weather and some very hot and humid weather, but uh, we seem to have left that behind, at least for the time being, um, as we gained elevation in Colombia, you guys have mentioned the, the uh, trampoline of death. I think is what you call it. The the road mm -hmm. yes. in Colombia. Can you start and just describe that road to begin with? Okay. Well, <laughs> I think it is an amazing road. We were told by several people. Um, first of all, the trampoline of death. Um, yes, a lot of people have lost their lives on that road over the course of the years but it's mostly truck drivers and bus drivers and um, unfortunate people who have been pushed off the side of the road. 
um, before there were guardrails. Now the guardrails are all in place. Um, people still can perish on that road, unfortunately, but um, it, it's not as dangerous as it sounds. Certainly not anymore. Um, but it's just, I don't know, what is it, a hundred and some kilometers of twisty road, but only 40 kilometers or 60 maybe, I, I don't know the numbers, are extremely twisty and very narrow with precipitous drops and like waterfalls to your right mm -hmm. and then a hundred foot drop on your left mm -hmm. and um, only room for one truck to squeeze by. And maybe if you're lucky, you can find a place to squeeze your motorcycle off to the side so um, you can both, you know, share the space. Um, it's scenic, it's high altitude, it's all dirt, uh, rough roads and some water crossings. And I was looking forward to it right from the moment that I heard about it, um, mostly for its scenic um, nature and for, and for the challenge. I was never um, afraid of it, and, uh, and I wouldn't want anyone else to be. It's, it's a, a road that I highly recommend. And Elle, how would you describe it? It is doable. Like the, the, I don't love off pavement travel, but, um, the road itself wasn't too scary. That one water crossing, I did get Jeremy to ride my bike across. Um, but there are times where it's very, very steep drop-offs and either there is no guardrail or the guardrail used to be there and is no longer. So there are some dangerous corners, but if you go slow, I was quite slow. I was in first gear a lot of the time. Um, it is absolutely doable. It's not something that ought not to be done just out of fear of the road conditions. I think if you're slow and careful, it's not that dangerous. Um, and it is beautiful. It's amazing. Jeremy's not exaggerating. Like time after time after time, there is mountain and jungle as far as you can see to your left and a waterfall coming right down beside you and dripping vines hanging so close they almost brush your head as you go by. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the vegetation actually grows over top of you, creating almost like a crescent moon of a, of a tunnel. Um, I just can't overstate how stunning this road was. Unfortunately, uh, when we rode it, we had some pretty inclement weather. So it was raining on us almost from the very start right to the very end. And um, sometimes it was coming down in buckets. Other times it was just a mist. But, um, you know, it limited our visibility mm -hmm. and it created extra challenges for us. Um, the day before the road, uh, the trampoline of death, some people call it the devil's trampoline, which I think is even funnier. Um, but the day before we had been on a, a dirt road and there was many mudslides, including stuck trucks and things like that. So, um, you know, there's an element of danger to the road. Uh, even if you are being very careful, there's a chance that you could be taken off with, with a landslide. Um, but you would have to be supremely unlucky, I think, for that to happen. When you're going uh, along this trampoline of death, what's the first obstacle you come to? For me, the first obstacle, that first water crossing, some of the water crossings were paved. So it's just like a nice little concrete pad with a little stream of water, maybe just four inches thick streaming over cross. No problem. This one was not. It was just rocks and some big boulders, some smaller rocks. You're definitely going to be jiggling and wiggling as you go through it. And you need a little bit of momentum and you need to keep your eyes up 
and straight ahead, not down at the rocks and not over at the cliff. But I kept looking down and then I stopped and then I was like, oh, I'm right at the edge and I have no momentum and I'm stopped and I'm nervous. Forget it. Jeremy, I'm going to let you do this for me. But then he rode my bike across and I had to walk. And I'm like, fine, I'll just step on the rocks. Like I'll jump from rock to rock. And I did halfway. And the next halfway, there was no rocks to jump on. It was just water and it was taller than my boots. And I'm like, I don't want to step in that. We're just beginning. We have all day in the rain. I don't want wet boots and wet feet. I really don't want to do this. Crap. I made a really bad decision. It would have been way better if I would have just bit my tongue told myself to look up no matter what and ridden through it would have been way better so I just stomped through like a little kid in a puddle and the water was higher and went right inside my boots I was wet and soggy for the rest of the whole day it it was it was funny Jim because uh (laughs) she stopped before the water crossing and then I went through with my KLR and then I came back to get her bike and meanwhile she had actually managed to work herself into a part of the water crossing that was like one of the worst lines you could take. But it was committed now because the bike was there. I couldn't turn around, so I had to ride it through. And then I, I tried to film Elle coming, walking through, and she describes it perfectly, that she was stomping like a toddler through the water. And then she was mad. She's like, well, you didn't have to walk through this water. I'm like, what are you talking about? I walked through to get your motorcycle. And she completely hadn't considered that no. because she was too stressed out in, yeah. in the moment. So what are their obstacles on the, on the trampoline of death? Well, you know, it, it, there weren't many obstacles. It was a rough road. Like I say, visibility was a bit of an issue. Uh, and then the, the corners are very tight. And you never know if there's going to be a truck coming your way. So mm-hmm. uh, there weren't um, trucks with trailers because the road wouldn't allow that kind of vehicle. But there were definitely some big five-ton transport trucks. And if you happened to be going around a corner when one of those was coming around the corner the other way, uh, you would both stop. And then you would both figure out who's going to okay, back up. Yeah, who's going to back <laughs> up? Well, it's usually the smaller vehicle that has and to back up. And backing up in the wet, slippery mud on a motorcycle that's loaded with too much luggage is not fun. Yeah. So you try to look ahead, um, and sometimes the, the corners were so tight and switchbacked that if you look way down the valley, if you can, you can see a big truck coming, and then it disappears around a corner, and then it reappears, and then it disappears. So you can kind of tell, okay, maybe in three or four corners, I'm going to meet this truck, so I'm going to try to find a wider turnout uh, to pull over and stop. And, uh, and there were some memorial sites mm-hmm. along the way. Lots of shrines along the way. Lots of shrines. Uh, sometimes, I imagine most of them are there uh, at the site of an accident in which someone may have lost their life. Um, some of them are quite elaborate. Some of them are just little crosses. Um, but usually there's a little bit of a wider section there where you can pull your motorcycle into and just wait. Elle used the word doable, um, whereas you were excited about the road. But it mm-hmm. is is it doable? I mean, is it just a, another road that people are using for transportation every day? Is it something other riders should avoid if, if they're not into a real adventure? It's not an efficient road. Like if you just want to get from point A to point B, please don't take that road. It is only a hundred and some kilometers, mm-hmm. 170 maybe the mm-hmm. toll amount we went that day. And even Google said that it would take five hours, five and a half. Mm-hmm. So we budgeted six. And that was with some time to stop and take pictures and things like that. It is not efficient in any way, but it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by doable is the road itself 
the lack of pavement is not so technical that someone who isn't um, great at off-road riding should feel scared of doing. I'm not great at off-road riding. The the lack of pavement isn't what the scary part of that road is. It's the sheer drop-offs and narrow parts and places. Yeah, and and I would say it's highly recommended. I, I would do that road if I lived in the area. I would do that road two or three times a year for sure, maybe more. Uh, and there are buses that go back and forth on that road, uh, like little vans packed with 15 people. Uh, and there are transport trucks that go on that road uh, and taxis and motorcyclists, uh, usually on little 250cc bikes. Um, so it is a road that the locals do use. but um, And it's not as dangerous as it once was because there are guardrails in most places where the guardrails haven't been washed away. Um, yeah, I, I can't recommend that road enough, to be honest. You're in Quito now. Um, yeah. and you, you sort of have this medical issue. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. that, that you both had, have had medical issues. L, you didn't say anything about what you've been experiencing. Um, I've been basically taking some downtime and relaxing while Jeremy is taking time to heal. We were both sick back in Taganga, just um, north of Santa Marta in Colombia, where we did some scuba diving. I just came down with a cold that was awful. Um, I felt a little bit bad being the one to make the decision. Hey, Jeremy, we got to stay here one more day because I don't feel good to ride. My head was so congested. It felt like it weighed 50 pounds heavier than usual. And uh, my body was achy and awful and sore. It was a couple of days of really bad illness like that. And then I started to improve well enough to get back on the bike and go again. But the cough and lingering congestion has continued, I think, for both of us. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what contributed to some of Jeremy's ear issue. Yeah, that's what that's what ended up getting me that cold that we got into Ganga. And then uh, that turned into a nasal congestion. And then uh, here we are with a popped eardrum. And, mm-hmm. and we did also, I don't know if we mentioned this, but we, we had a, a week of downtime in Mexico for... Um, as well. Yeah, dentist. Um, I did some dental work along the road and then again in Costa Rica as well. So I'm glad that's all taken care of now. Was that an emergency or was that something you planned to do some dental tourism where there's where it's less expensive? I knew in Canada that I wanted to get stuff done as much as I could before I left on this trip. And so I went to the dentist and she gave me a couple of fillings and said I needed a root canal and a crown. And I'm like, great, I still have a job. I still have benefits. Let's do everything, get it all done. And my benefits did not cover anywhere near as much as what I needed. So I paid first the fillings on my own, but the root, the root canal was done, but not the crown. And that was going to be at minimum $1,000, depending how the process went. And I had already put out an extra $1,500 for a new cam chain on my bike. Um, we had paid... Uh, over $1,000 for travel insurance before we started. And I was quite discouraged about how much money I was putting out before we even left Canada. So um, she said I didn't need the crown immediately. It could be anywhere in the next year. So I said, great, if I don't need it immediately, maybe what I'll do is get it done in Mexico. I've heard of other people doing that. I spoke to some friends who go to Mexico often, some who've done dental work there, got a few recommendations. And then while we were in San Miguel de Allende, met with a friend there who had a friend recommend a dentist, went, had the crown placed, but then um, it needed to have some adjusting done. So later in Costa Rica, a friend of mine introduced me to a friend of his who's a dentist and actually did the final adjustment for free for me, which is fabulous. Wow. So how much money do you think Mm -hmm. you saved getting your dental work done in Mexico? About $1,000, I'd say. Wow. Yeah. 
So that this, this, I'm just thinking this could be somebody's excuse to go. I mean, it could yeah, end, absolutely. It, they could go to yeah. Mexico and actually have a cut, end up costing them nothing at that point, depending on how much you want I to do. I have heard of people who've said that they left Canada, flew to Mexico, did their dental work and flew back. And the entire cost of the trip was less than just the dental work in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I've heard the same thing. Now you mentioned travel insurance um, and a thousand dollars for travel insurance. What did you end up getting for travel insurance? Um, Well, that's for a year. Apparently, as far as we could find anyway, there wasn't anyone that would cover more than a year. So we purchased a whole year's worth. And if we want to add on to that after we can Um, emergency evacuation, if we need Mm-hmm. Um, not just for ourselves, but I think there's a family clause in there too. So if someone in your immediate family um, is either gravely ill or has passed away and you need to fly home for a funeral or something like that, I believe there's some funds in there for that. And I think uh, hopefully it covers maybe some movement of the vehicle back to Canada if need be, or maybe not. I don't know about that. <laughs> Jeremy and I argued for a while. I have never had travel insurance before. I traveled for six months from Canada down to Panama and back a couple times, and I never bought travel insurance. Mm. Um, now, I've seen the inside of a Guatemalan hospital. I know that they may not have the same services we do back in Canada, but it's free. So I thought if I did fall and break a leg, uh, they would fix my leg. And if it was something I needed to go home for, it would cost me $1,000, let's say, for a flight home. But that's only in simple situations. If there was something more complicated and I was unconscious or unable to communicate, it could be quite expensive. So Jeremy and I discussed and agreed to buy this. Yeah, we've heard that some of these medical flights, like let's say that something does happen and you end up in a hospital with some um, pretty serious injury or condition, um, they'll put you on a flight and they'll send you back to Canada. But those flights themselves can cost upwards of $50,000 depending on what it is and how much care you need on the flight, et cetera. So this uh, insurance that we have covers for that. And you pay it and then you hope you never use it. And then if you don't use it and a year passes and you're back in Canada, then you regret paying it again. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But but I mean, yeah, the, the thought of something going wrong, uh, you know, is uh, it just could be horrible. It could, it could ruin you for mm-hmm. a very long time. But um, so where do you go from here? So we're going to stay in Quito a few more days. Hopefully Jeremy's ear improves each day. We're going to head to Horizons Unlimited, just a little bit south of Quito. And then we're going to do a little bit more exploring in Ecuador Mm -hmm. and then on to Peru. Now, um, apprehensions uh, about what's ahead? A little bit. Um, Elevation and cold. I'm not looking forward to cold. (laughs) We're at about two or almost 3,000 meters right now. And when the clouds come over, it's chilly. We're going to go up higher in Peru. And I want to. I mean, I want to see Machu Picchu and I want to go on these roads that some of the guys who are on the stall rat with us are telling us about as they're ahead of us. Um, It's going to be colder. Uh, We're going to get down to Patagonia and it's going to be very, very windy. I've heard lots of stories about that. So a little bit of apprehension around that for me. Yeah, it's funny when you asked us uh, that question, Jim, any apprehension going south, Elle immediately nodded her head and started answering the question. <laughs> and as she was doing that, I was shaking my head. <laughs> nope, no apprehension. Yeah. Uh, my only thing right now is uh, my, my current uh, health situation, but uh, I'm optimistic there and uh, looking forward to more exploration and... and uh, and it is, it is quite exploratory and adventurous now. I think the feeling for me has changed quite a bit since crossing the Darien Gap. Um, I have no idea what to expect. I mean, I've seen pictures, 
but everything is brand new territory for me as opposed to knowing what to expect and what some of my favorite places might be when I get to them as I felt through Central America. Now the feeling of adventure has definitely ramped up and excitement along with it as well. Mm -hmm. You guys take care. We'll talk again in a few weeks. Thanks. Thanks. Sounds good, Jim. What made you decide to do the route, uh, Trampoline of Death? Surely there must be another route around. Yeah, well, we had talked to a few people. Uh, some said it's a not-to-miss road. Others said, uh, you know, go around, avoid it. Um, but we were chatting with uh, the folks at Motolumbia in Cali, and uh, Mike from Motolumbia said, you've got to hit the Trampoline of Death. That's a must-see. We and- were torn because there was a cathedral and a canyon that we wanted to see. And this road, but we couldn't do both. And he was like, oh, yeah, you can just go this way and this way, and then you can do both. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's exactly right. And we're, we know that we're missing things, but uh, there's reason to come back, I guess. Yes. Well, your route south, will that be your route north? Hopefully not. Maybe some of the favorite things. I bet you Jeremy would like to do Trampolina Death Road again. <laughs> yeah, well, I've actually heard... Mm. I've heard that there are even more brilliant and higher and twistier and death-defying roads in Bolivia and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I would definitely do that road again. Jeremy Craker and L. West on our Adventure Rider Radio exclusive travel series, Southward Chronicles. Stay tuned for more coming up in the coming months as we follow their journey to Ushuaia. And uh, I encourage you to follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy underscore Craker. We have those full links to their social media in the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much. Hey if you like what we're doing here and you'd like to help out we would love to have your support. AdventureRiderRadio.com is a website. Click on the support button. Don't forget you can listen to all of our episodes for free whether it be through a podcast app or right from our website but if you go to our website you can look at the show notes for each episode and like this one it has a bunch of photographs in there that you haven't seen elsewhere and there's always information in there. So drop by, have a look, and you can also comment on it. We'd love to get your comments on the website. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate it. Talk to you next week.
Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you go, we have another show called ARR Raw. If you don't know about it all already, you need to subscribe separately. Comes out monthly. You can get it on our website or anywhere you find podcasts. Roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. There's six of us get there. Um, anyway, drop by and check that out. We really appreciate your help and uh, we love your feedback. Thanks. Jocelyn Snow, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!